And uh, we are in chapter 6 this morning um, as we continue our study. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 29. Verses 14 through 29. So I encourage you to, to open there and follow along as I read for us. Let me read this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said... John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like the one of the prophets of the old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John And bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom." And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with order to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we need your help even just in listening to your word, uh, much less than understanding. So we ask for your help through and through, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher in this moment. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a little boy, I had a castle playset. And this was one of my most favorite toys. This thing was so cool. It had a drawbridge that you could wind up and wind down. It had a cannon that really shot. It even had a a few knights in armor with big swords in their hands. I loved this thing. But I had the older model of the toy. There was a newer model that was the exact same as my model, except that it had a knight riding on a horse. And man, did I want this knight that was riding on a horse. And one day in my old church, as I was playing in their nursery, I discovered that the church had this knight riding on the horse. And I was playing with it, and I thought, wouldn't this be great if this could be mine? So to my shame, that night, 
I tucked it into my coat pocket. I stole it and took it home. Now, what I discovered in playing with this stolen toy is that the more I played with it, the less pleasure I found in it, so much so that even my castle playset that was rightfully mine started to not be so much fun to play with anymore. It got so bad that I took the toy and I buried it as deep into the toy box as I possibly could so that I didn't even have to look at it anymore. I had a guilty conscience that would not let me alone. How is your conscience this morning? Do you have a conscience that is clear? Or do you have a conscience that is pricking you and won't let you alone? I ask the question because in the text this morning, we see a man who ignored his guilty conscience and we see the consequences it had not only for his own soul, but the soul of a servant of God as well. Who is that man? Verse 14 tells us, King Herod, King Herod. Now, it's important for us when we read our Bibles to remember that the people that we read about in them were real people. Uh, Just like you and me, they really lived and walked up and down this earth. And Herod was a real man. In fact, the Herodian family is prominent all throughout the New Testament. And the Herod that is here in Mark 6 is Herod Antipas. There's some things that I think we should know about him as we go into the story. First of all, the first thing we need to know, he was a very evil man. Uh, Jesus, in Luke 13, referring to Herod, calls him that fox, that fox. A rare use of name-calling by Jesus that he reserved for only a select few, and Herod made his list. And he also came from a very evil family. If you remember the Christmas story, when we read about Jesus uh, uh, trying to be killed by King Herod, that was his father, Herod the Great. Uh, He sought to kill Jesus and all of the, the male Jewish babies when Jesus was born. And this Herod Antipas was the son of that Herod the Great. As history goes, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom that he oversaw in Judea got split into four different sections and dispersed to his four different sons. And this Herod Antipas got the Galilean region as his domain, the region that Jesus exercised the majority of his ministry. So you can imagine, can't you, Herod is uh, ruling and reigning in Galilee, and he starts hearing the buzz about this man named Jesus of Nazareth. He starts hearing people's opinions about who this man is. We can see what those opinions were. Take a look at verse 14 and 15. He starts hearing people say things like, well, he's John the Baptist, and he's been raised from the dead. Verse 15, some thought that Jesus was Elijah, just like Malachi said that Elijah would come back before the great day of the Lord. And others thought that Jesus was just a prophet, like one of the Old Testament prophets that God had given his people. Isn't it interesting? All these people, they they dance around the identity of Jesus, but they never quite hit the target, do they? Just like people in our day, apart from the 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 opening of the heart from the Holy Spirit will have great opinions of who Jesus is, but we never quite come to the point of seeing that he is God, that he is the Lord and the Savior. But what does Herod think when he hears about Jesus? Take a look at verse 16. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, 
whom I beheaded has been raised. This man who enjoyed power, prosperity, and pleasure is reduced to utter paranoia because of what he had done to Jesus' servant, John the Baptist. What we see in King Herod is a conscience paranoid, that a conscience, a guilty conscience will never rest. Now, in the opening verses of Mark's gospel, when we first began our study, we took a look at John, and we were reminded that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of the great prophecy, the great promise that God had made to his people, that he would send them a messenger who would prepare the way for Jesus' coming. And when John the Baptist preached, his message was clear and it was simple. It was essentially a two-point message. Point one, John the Baptist preached, the Lord is here, he has come. And point two was, prepare to receive him by turning from your sin. And the multitude, all the followers that he got as they came out to the wilderness to hear him preached, uh, preach and to be baptized by him. He was really like the Billy Graham of his day, how Billy Graham would, uh, would do his great evangelistic services and thousands upon thousands would come to listen to him preach. And just like Billy Graham was able to speak into the lives of many politicians in his ministry, so John the Baptist apparently had the privilege of speaking into Herod in his life. We don't know the extent of the relationship, but take a look at verse 20. Verse 20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. When I read that verse, it made me think of the story of Ben Franklin and his relationship to George Whitfield, the evangelist during the Great Awakening. Ben Franklin, we know, was not a born-again believer. He had some serious issues with the person of Jesus in the Bible. But he loved George Whitfield's preaching, and he would always make a point to go and to listen to George Whitfield. And what George Whitfield would do after his sermon was done, he would ask for a collection to be taken up to go to support the orphanage that he had founded. And Ben Franklin would always go to Whitfield's preaching, and the story goes that Ben Franklin would tell himself, I'm not going to give any money to George Whitfield today. I'm not going to give any money to George Whitfield. And about a quarter of the way into the sermon, he would say to himself, well, maybe I'll give him a little something. And halfway through the sermon, oh, maybe give him a little more. And then Ben Franklin said, it never failed by the end of the sermon, my pockets were clean. Isn't it interesting? He admired Whitfield but he never came to believe in the Jesus that Whitfield preached. Herod admired John the Baptist, but never came to faith in the message that John the Baptist preached. So how did Herod go from a man who respected John <laughs> to being the man who ultimately would murder John? Well, there was a spiteful woman. How often in the downfall of a man is there a spiteful woman? Take a look at verse 17. Verse 17, it turns out that Herod had a thing for his brother's wife, Herodias. Verse 17 says it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now, just to get clear in our minds how messed up the Herodian family is, in my research, here is who Herodias was. So track with me here. <laughs> Herodias was the daughter 
of Herod's half-brother, whom his father had murdered. So his half-brother gets murdered, and his other brother, Philip, marries Herodias. So track with me. That means that Herodias is Herod's niece and his sister-in-law and his wife. This is like, I'm my own grandpa. Uh, There's a serious problem in the Herodian family. Uh, History tells us that on a visit that Philip made to Herod, Herod and Herodias had an affair together and decided to divorce their current spouses to be able to be together in this lustrous relationship. Well, verse 18, John the Baptist being a righteous man, he sees the immorality of the situation. And out of a conscience bound to the word of God, and out of concern for Herod, John warns Herod. In verse 18, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What we really see in John the Baptist is a conscience that is sanctified, a conscience that is Bible-shaped, that is bound by the word of God. John the Baptist is an excellent example here of faithfulness to Christ and courage to stand upon him. Now, we we don't know what tone John used with Herod. Uh, Knowing John the Baptist, it was probably something like, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. But it could have also been, hey, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. We don't know what tone he used, but we do know that John had the integrity to say something. Friends, as followers of Jesus, we represent Jesus not only in representing the message of hope and grace in the gospel, but we also have to be prepared to represent Jesus by standing on the absolute morals that he sets down, the moral absolutes that he has as his commandments and his word. I know it's tricky in our day, isn't it? In our society of increased normalization of sexual immorality, I know some of your stories. Some of you have children and grandchildren who are walking outside of the bounds of God's plan for sexuality. Some of us have friends and family members who identify as LGBTQ. It could be so hard to, to know, how do, I, how do I make it clear? How do I draw the line in a way that is loving and yet in a way that is clear to, to stand upon the reality that God has said that any sexual intimacy outside of the marital bonds of one man and one woman is sinful. It's wrong. We need wisdom in doing this. I heard the story of a mother recently who helped her daughter to see uh, that living with her boyfriend was something that was displeasing to the Lord. Uh, The story goes that she was invited over to dinner at her daughter's house, and while her and her daughter were cooking dinner together before the boyfriend came home from work, her mother said very gently, she said to her daughter, you know, honey, it, it is displeasing to the Lord that you two are living together. And the daughter sort of hemmed and hawed, rolled her eyes, said, Mom, I know, I I know what your guys' convictions are, but I'm telling you, it's above board. We're we're just living together. We're not sleeping together. I sleep in my bed, and he sleeps in his. Mom said, okay, but you know where I stand, and you know what the Bible says. Well, a few days passed after the dinner, and the daughter and the boyfriend discovered that the china was missing. It wasn't in the place that it normally is, and they're scratching their heads. Did mom take the china? Did she move the china? What is going on? So the daughter called her mom, 
and said, Mom, um, did you move the china around? And the mom said, oh, honey, I can't believe you missed it. I had placed it under the sheets of your bed. <laughs> Ephesians. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We as Christians must have Bible-shaped consciences, like John the Baptist, that should lead us to a concern to help people see when they are walking outside of God God's moral boundaries. And we have to be careful when we do this, that we, we don't come up to people with this holier-than-thou, self-righteous attitude, but that we admit we are sexual sinners who have been forgiven, and God is still at work in our lives, but that we have to be willing to actually talk to people and set an example, to say to them, I, I do want to hang out with you, but I, I can't go with you to see that movie. Or you are very important to me, but I can't attend that wedding. Or I will always love you and I will always be here for you, but I cannot approve of this relationship. Are we willing to stand upon God's word? And if we are going to take a stand, we ought to know how it worked out for John the Baptist. Because in verse 19, take a look at verse 19, Herodias isn't very happy with John the Baptist. Verse 19 Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. That's what she did in the Herod household. If you didn't like somebody, well, just get him killed. Uh, don't have to worry about it. So Herod has a problem, doesn't he? Uh, Herod, on the one hand, uh, he, 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 he loves John and he respects John, but he also loves his sin and does not want to let his sin go. So what is he going to do? Well, the next thing we see is a conscience ignored, that trying to make sin work never works. We're told in the Bible there is only one thing that we really can do with our sin, and that is we can repent of it. But John decides, rather than repentance, he's going to try to manage it. He's going to take the middle ground. Uh, because he doesn't want to upset Herodias, he does something with John, but because he loves John, he's not going to get John killed, so what does he do? Well, verse 17, again, I'll put him in prison. And maybe that'll calm Herodias. And hey, that gets John out of our hair, out of sight, out of mind. He's pushing the proverbial stolen toy deeper into the toy box. There's a little bit of Herod in all of us, isn't there? That's why we read in Romans 1 and verse 32 that we know God's moral law, that sin is sin and that it's wrong, but that we choose to do it anyway. And we not only choose to do it, but we approve of others who do it as well. Well, Herodias is not a happy camper, this spiteful lady. And in verse 21, the story hits a climax. Take a look at verse 21. An opportunity came. Dun, 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 dun. It's a birthday party. And at this birthday party, Herod has invited who is he invited? Verse 21, his nobles, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee. 
Uh, it's like the Oscars. All the important elite special people in his day are going to be there, and he needs to throw a huge party and really make a show. Uh, these parties were very popular among the uh, Roman politicians of the day. They called these parties symposiums. And the order of how these parties would go is it would start with a huge banquet of food and drink. And the idea was, if you're going to this party, you are going to drink until you're absolutely out of your mind drunk. You're going to get drunk at this party. And then once the meal was over, they brought prostitutes in to dance for the men, and then the whole thing would devolve into a massive orgy. So, at verse 21... These men, we are to assume, are absolutely plastered. They are drunk out of their mind. And now it's time for the entertainment to come in. But instead of a prostitute coming in, whoa, who comes in? Verse 22, when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Whoa, we get a royal daughter entertaining us, a special treat. And let me tell you, this is not, we're not to think of this as like a ballet routine or a ballroom dance. This is Dirty Dancing 101. And she pleases these men. And you can imagine the men in their drunken stupor, they're hooping, they're hollering, they're catcalling, and then Herod opens his stupid mouth. And what does he say in verse 22? He says to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish. I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now the commentators say that Herodias most likely was behind sending her daughter into the party to dance because she seized the opportunity. So the daughter goes back to her mom in verse 24 and asks her mother, Herodias, what should I ask for? And she says, I want the head of John the Baptist. So she came back in. Verse 24, she asked the king, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I wonder if at this point Herod was singing, I'm caught in a trap. I can't walk out. What's he going to do? Is he going to fear God? Or before the face of all of his friends and the high people of the culture, is he going to fear man? Verse 26, the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He chose the fear of man. So verse 27, he sends the executioner, John is beheaded. His head is brought in on a platter and given to the girl. What are we supposed to learn from this passage? I think two lessons. One from John and one from Herod. First, the lesson from John the Baptist. I wonder, are, are you noticing what Mark has been doing for us in chapter 6? Uh, we looked in the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 through 6, Jesus goes to his hometown and he's rejected. Last week, we saw that the disciples were sent out in verse 7 through 13. They were sent out to spread the gospel message and they were rejected. And now we see John the Baptist, out of concern for a king, warning him about his sin, 
he is beheaded. Isn't this the story of how it has so often worked for the servants of God? Jim Elliott and his friends, desiring to, to reach the people of Ecuador with the gospel, they land their plane and they're immediately speared through. Martin Luther King Jr. preaching a gospel that would break the barriers of racial uh, injustice, and he's shot dead outside of his hotel. Paul the Apostle seeking to reach the Gentile world for Christ, and he's killed at the hands of the Gentiles. John the Baptist warning a king about his sin, and he loses his head. Were these lives worth it? Was their death a waste? Is it ever a waste to stand upon the truth of Christ? I think the question John the Baptist's example asks us is, is what sacrifice are we prepared to make to honor Jesus, to honor Jesus? I love one of the commentators this week said, John was willing to lose his head in order to keep his conscience clear before Christ. Would we be willing to lose our head in order to keep our conscience clear? Would we be willing to tell a friend, I'm concerned about your sin? Well, that's the lesson from John the Baptist. What about the lesson from Herod? I think the lesson that Herod teaches us is that a conscience ignored will eventually become a conscience lost. A conscience ignored will eventually become a conscience lost. Do you see the slow fade of Herod throughout this story? He begins by respecting John and knowing that John is right in what he stands for and what he preaches. And yet when push comes to shove, he ignores his conscience and he puts John in prison. And then later on in the story, when he's given the opportunity to spare John's life, he again ignores his conscience, and he has John killed. And we all know that later on in the gospel record, Herod will have an opportunity to have Jesus himself stand before him and give him an opportunity to be pardoned so that he wouldn't be crucified. And he's so far gone at this point in his life that when Jesus himself stands before him, he doesn't even care, but sends him right back to Pilate. Sinclair Ferguson, in speaking about these, uh, these verses and the example of Herod, says this, the lesson is crystal clear. Unless we silence sin, sin will silence conscience. Unless we heed God's word, the day may come when we despise God's son. And then God will have nothing more to say to us. A conscience ignored. The more we dull our conscience, it will eventually become a conscience lost. Well, some of you may be wondering, whatever happened with the stolen toy? How'd that story end? Well, I still have it, and I play with it to this day. <laughs> no. There came a moment, as a little boy, I'm laying in my bed, and when my guilt, I could no longer handle my guilt, I got out of my bed, I went down to the toy box, I took the toy out of the toy box, and I took it into my mom, who was getting ready to, for bed. And I said to her, I'm pitiful little Adam, I'm there, Mom, I stole this toy from the church. 
and I just feel so bad. And I'm thinking about the children who love playing with this toy, and now they can't enjoy the toy because I took it, and I know God's not happy, and blah, 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 blah. My mother helped me. She thanked me for telling the truth. She helped me to know that I needed to put the toy back and I needed to ask forgiveness, not only of the people I had stolen it from, but that I could go to my heavenly father and ask for forgiveness. This morning, friends, where can we go with a guilty conscience? We can take it to a heavenly father who will tell us the way And what the Father will always do is he will point us to his Son and what his Son has done for all who feel the guilt and shame of their sin. The call to the unbeliever is that your conscience will never be clear. The guilty conscience that you feel today will never be clear apart from what the cross of Christ can do for you. It's one thing to have the apology of man, But it's a whole other thing to know that in God's sight, your sin has been cleared. And what Christ did for us on the cross is he took our guilt. He took our shame. He took uh, the the penalty that, that was ours because of our sin. He took it upon himself and he did it away with. It was gone. He paid the debt. He cleared the record. He casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And he calls us to trust in his son and to walk in obedience to him, to turn from sin, to begin walking in his ways. And the call really is pretty much the same for the believer too, isn't it? We look again at the son. We take our guilty conscience to the cross. We ask for the forgiveness of our sin. And we walk in obedience to his word. When we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we repent, we turn. There is always room at the cross. In this life, every single one of us will face temptation. that's, That's a given. But not all of us have to become Herod. That is a choice that we alone can make. In closing, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I ask you, friends, once again this morning, how is your conscience? Is your conscience clear? Or do you have a conscience that you need to take to your heavenly father this morning so that you can do some business at the cross of Christ once again? Let's pray. Father, we want to walk in obedience to your truth. We do not want to become like Herod who ignored the pleadings and the prickings that you bring to our conscience because of our sin that we love so much. But we want to be like John the Baptist who stood in obedience to your word, whose conscience was bound to the word of God, so much so that Not only would he walk in obedience to your word, but he wanted to see others walk in obedience to it as well. So this morning, any sin that we may have within our hearts that we know uh, we have yet to really talk to you about, that we have really yet to turn from, uh, that the example of Herod uh, would sober us up a little bit, 
and that the example of John the Baptist would encourage us uh, to take, take our sin and bring it to Jesus. We pray these things.